This semester, I've gotten to know a lot of art education and art majors, which is thrilling to me because I was an art major, and I appreciate the work that you art ed and art majors do. Um, artists uh, fulfill many roles in society. Um, one of the most exciting roles that artists fulfill in our society is they themselves will enter into something and sort of feel it, and uh, then they will express it to us to help us understand. So they will put a work of art on display that they have really wrestled with internally, and they will put something that's inside them and inside us, and they will put it out on a canvas or in a piece of music or in a piece of drama or dance, so that when we come up to it and we, and we view it, we say, oh, okay, that's what that experience was like. I can begin to interact with that experience now. Or, oh, that's how this thing felt. I, I, can, I can interact with this painting or interact with this, uh, with this cinema and begin, begin to get a feeling of something that's happening on someone's insides and they put it out to display. That display allows us in. And the story that we have tonight in the book of Acts is a display just like that. But it's a display that God is putting on in someone's life. In, this, in the, the life of this man named Saul of Tarsus. This guy Saul, you may hear me saying Paul, it's not that they just sounded like. Later on, he changed his name to Paul. I have no idea why. They didn't tell me that one in seminary. He would later on be called Paul, and he would write half the books of the New Testament. And what happened to this man in this story that we're looking at tonight is a display, an outward display, of what is true about each one of us on the inside. Paul puts that on display in his life. And it's also a display of what God does inside people's lives when he brings them to faith in Jesus and he changes what we love. And so it's a story that's worth our time because it shows us what we're like on the inside. So it's in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to jump in. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I think it's, I think it's worth our attention. Um, let's see here. Acts 9. This is the word of the living God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and the way there means uh, Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. 
And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, this is the word of the living God. and I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask him to be with us as we uh, think about it together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, uh, everybody in this room just comes tonight in a different place, a different state of mind, a different state of their soul. Lord, we're so grateful that you have allowed each of us to be here. And you've allowed each of us by your grace to come in no matter where we are in our story, whether we're doubting, whether this whole thing sounds crackpot to us, whether we're discouraged and hurting, whether we're confused, whether we're excited and hopeful, um, or or whether we're really not sure where we are. You know each of us, and you can speak to us by your word. So we ask that you would send your spirit to be with us, and that you would speak to us and show us Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. So, uh, T. Oh, man. <clears throat> it's a struggle, y'all. Saul's story, like I said, is a display to show us the before, during, and after of what something called conversion looks like. What God does when he converts a person is he brings that person to faith in Jesus, where they begin to follow Jesus, and Jesus begins to change their life. And so as we look at Paul, we'll see what does it look like for a person to be converted. And the first thing I want to look at with you together is how we arrive. How do we begin? Like, where do we even show up um, when, we, when we begin to approach Jesus to be, have a conversion? <clears throat> now, Paul, as, as you can probably tell from this passage, he wasn't just like ideologically opposed to Christianity. Like, I disagree with these people, but we can all live and let live. He was emotionally and viscerally committed to stamping out this thing that was called Christianity, this thing that was called the way, because he saw it as a heresy, as a very strict observer of of Judaism. He said, these people think that Jesus is the son of God and that he is God and there's only one true God. And so he was committed to really doing spiritual and religious genocide uh, to Christian believers. Later on in Acts 22, I just wanted to read you quickly something Paul says about himself. Listen, Listen, it's not just that he opposed. Listen to what he says. Um, he said, as I was on my, oh, it's, uh, here, here. Mm-hmm. 26, mm. y'all gonna be honest, these Bibles are great, they're free, but the type is small, um, mm-hmm. okay, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And listen to this. And in raging fury 
against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He would go and lock up Christians. When they would be put to death, he would cast his vote against them. And he would try to make them blaspheme so that they would be given the death penalty. Um, He was viscerally and emotionally committed to opposing this Christian faith. And here's how that affects you. Here's why that matters for you tonight. When Jesus bursts into Saul's life and he comes to him, what he says in verse four is he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, And then in verse five, you know, Saul's like, ah, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And now it's interesting because Paul isn't actually persecuting Jesus, right? Jesus isn't even there. He's persecuting Christians. And yet Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Two things that means. One is that Jesus so closely identifies himself with his people that he says, when you hurt them, you hurt me. When you threaten them, you threaten me. When you oppose them, you oppose me. But secondly, what that means is that this violence that Paul is, is doing, this, that he's going to Damascus with these papers to really commit acts of terrorism against believers in Damascus, doesn't find its ultimate source in those people. Jesus is saying it finds its source in me. You think you're persecuting other people, but you are in fact persecuting me. It's really about me. And why that matters for you is because what we call sin, and some of you guys are very familiar with that word, and you have a lot of baggage with it. And some of you guys, when I say the word sin, you're like, I only use that when I'm talking about like dessert, you know, um, like sinful chocolate cake or, you know. When we, what we talk about, what we mean when we say sin is not primarily something that you do. It's not an action that you commit. It's not something that you, that you do that's bad or something that you don't do that's bad. It's a disposition against God inside. It's where your insides are opposed to God in a relational way. We all know this intrinsically that what we do doesn't as matter doesn't matter as much as the disposition disposition of our heart and you know this if you've been in a relationship i'm in a relationship um <clears throat> yeah and um if you only knew uh and uh i have been for almost 10 years with sarah jane and uh we went out on sunday night thank you kirby and mary grace for babysitting and uh, we got ready, and like I helped extra with the kids so that my wife could get ready, you know, and uh, made the reservation, and like she wore a dress, it was like her first time wearing it out, and I made sure like, hey, that looks great, you know, and um, feeling pretty good, kind of doing like the right stuff, excited to go to this new place. And we got in the car, she said, we're like driving, she was like, you know, um, just sometimes it doesn't really even feel like you like me. And uh, everyone's like, oh, man, we just, got, we just went there. We just got real like that. And, um, and that's because I hadn't been prioritizing my wife and what I was doing. But what she knows and what we all know intrinsically and relationally is that you can do all the right things. Um, but everyone knows when your heart is not directed in love toward another person. Anyone knows when your heart isn't engaged. And at our core... Our hearts are disengaged, set in opposition toward the one who made us in his love. The Bible is really clear that humans are not in a rut or on the wrong path or sick, but that we are opposed to God at our core, like in the core of our being, and that our actions flow from there. A friend of mine says, our actions are just the canary in the coal mine. 
of something that's actually going on with us. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, when God talks about sin, he uses language of adultery. That your heart has gone to a lover that's not me. And look, something that every freshman in this room has realized over the past month and a half, and you've, you already knew this, but now when you're sitting by yourself in your room, you realize even more, that what, is, what happens inside of us in the realm of our emotions is unbelievably confusing. It's desperately confusing. You have anger toward one of your parents. You have resentment toward a roommate. Jealousy in a relationship. Insecurity about your body or about your abilities. And my question for you is, don't those, those feelings of anger, resentment, jealousy, insecurity, don't they feel like they were already there? Like when you meet someone, you're angry at them, you're like, they made me angry. But isn't it more, more that, like the case that that anger was already there and it found that person to attach to? And, and have you considered that maybe that there's a source of that resentment that is actually toward God. What Paul is showing us on the outside is what's true of all of us on the inside is that we are in opposition. When we arrive, we arrive in opposition to Jesus, who's our maker. Um, And that's the bad news. But the good news is so much better than the bad news because that's how we arrive. And I want to talk to you about the pursuit of Jesus. Because look, if you're here and you are at all interested in getting an idea of what Jesus is like, this is the passage that you should be looking at. This is a wonderful display. Saul is barreling. I, I love that Olivia shared her story tonight, and I, I never get tired of hearing that story. I've actually told that story without asking her permission many times up here from the front. And I'm sorry about that, but you know, it's just too good. Um, <laughs> Saul is barreling headlong into violence and destruction. He's taking papers to Damascus to lock up and hopefully kill Christian people. Notice what he hasn't been doing. He hasn't been in a Bible study considering the claims of Jesus, right? He hasn't been slowly softening his heart toward God. He hasn't been starting to clean up his act and get his stuff together to get right with God. He is actually in the most committed, open season of opposition to Jesus and opposition to Christianity. And that is precisely when Jesus shows up in Paul's life and changes him forever. He comes to Saul and in a moment, Saul goes from persecuting the church to preaching that Jesus is the Son of God just like that. This would be like, you know, last October, Trump tweeting, like, hey, I was wrong in my whole thing, and I'm joining, you know, Mrs. Clinton's team. I want to help her get elected president. I mean, everyone would be like, maybe. Um, this 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 is like Steve Bannon showing up on the border with Mexico to try and help families get across safely. I think those fans would be like, I'm good, man. Like, I, I, I'm, um, um. Or even more to the point, this is like Bellatrix Lestrange deciding to join the Order of the Phoenix, right? Showing up and saying, I would like to help take down Voldemort. Anyone with a brain in their head is going to do what Ananias, who's the other guy, guy in the story, does. And he's like, uh, we probably should just give like a grace period of like, you know, several months to make sure that this person is is telling the the truth that we should maybe not quite just embrace this dude that wanted to murder us like literally yesterday. And to that, Jesus says this. He says, no, 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 no. He's exactly the person I want. And he is exactly where I want him to be right now. He was hunting down my people to kill them. But I've been hunting Saul down to give him new life. Jesus has been pursuing Saul. Saul was pursuing 
in the rage of an animal, violence and death. And God was pursuing in the tender love of a father. And that is just a beautiful display of God's grace to us. Because listen, if you want to know the one thing that is the most beautiful and compelling truth about the Christian faith, it's that Jesus pursues people not only when they've done nothing to deserve it, but in fact when we are in open hostility and opposition to Jesus, that's when Jesus breaks in. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. And that's completely confusing to us. That you could be opposing Jesus and he is going to work in your life before you've even taken one step toward him. You may be opposing Jesus by like being the type of person that mocks Christians in your class. That's what I did. I was real good at it. Um, you may oppose Jesus by simply arranging all the pieces of your life so that so meticulously that you could never possibly be in need of another person, much less God. But whatever that opposition looks like, Jesus absorbs it all in himself and he says to you, he says, I love you. I'm not your enemy. Come and follow me. Because life with Jesus is grace. And grace means that something that's given for free when it's not deserved. It's grace, unearned, start, middle, and finish. And that drives us crazy sometimes. Because we don't know how to relate to people that way. We don't know how to relate to people when there is not a necessary cause and effect to our actions. That someone wouldn't just stop loving us because we were unlovely. And that, would have driven, that grace would have driven Paul the craziest. This dude was one of the most robustly theologically educated people in the ancient world. He outworked all his peers in his education. He was more committed than anyone. When it says he was a Pharisee, that means that he was the most strictly observing Jewish person possible. He followed all the steps just right. And the idea that he would come to God by grace would have offended him. And yet it would have totally set him free from all of his rule keeping and all of his needing to please God. And Jesus does him a kindness by making him blind. As soon as Saul sees Jesus, he is blind. And it's a, it's a total restart. And it's like Jesus is saying to him, Saul, this is how blind you have been the whole time. Take some time to reflect and pray before I let you see the world as it really is, which is a world where Jesus is on the throne. Um, and when Jesus, look, y'all, when Jesus interrupts your life, that may be starting to happen in your life now. It may be something that's continuing to happen in your life. Um, uh, you're beginning to see for the first time. It's bewildering and amazing because you realize in Jesus's economy, there is no deserving. There is no earning. There's just grace and how you respond to that grace. And that's why I got to be honest with you. The most un-Jesus thought and phrase that you can utter is, well, that's just what you get. I hear that's just what you get every single day. I hear it in my own heart. I say it to my children, say it to my wife. I hear it from y'all. Someone does something, you go, well, uh, effect follows cause. That's just how it goes. And in Jesus' economy, there is no earning. There is no, that's what you get. There's just free grace. And that's how, that's how Jesus pursues us. And the last thing I want to end for y'all on is what Jesus gives when he, when he converts a person, when he brings someone to faith. Think about this. Saul had been traveling to Damascus with these papers in hand. Just think about how emotionally concerned, like 
not just like doing his job, like worked up like an animal, going to Damascus to hunt these people down and find them and bring them back, bring them to justice in his mind. Going to Damascus, he was going to the synagogues with those papers. Literally days later, like maybe a week later, he's standing in a synagogue in Damascus going, Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah, the one that we, that we have been waiting for. And when Jesus converted Saul, he simultaneously lost everything and gained everything. And when Jesus brings you to faith in himself, you simultaneously lose everything. And, and it's traumatic and chaotic, yet you gain everything. And this is what I mean. This is what Paul lost. Jesus had to remove his seething anger from him. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be allowed to stay. He had to take away his spiritual pride. So many of us in the room continue to struggle from a, a sense of spiritual pride, that we've got our things together. He took away his source of boasting. But on a very human level, like Paul's a real person. Okay? He's not just like a historical figure. This is a real human. On a very human level, Saul lost his future that he had worked to this point to, to get. He lost his friends. He lost his career. He lost his identity. Everything that made Saul, Saul, he lost in that moment when he saw Jesus and realized he's the resurrected one. He's the son of God. I have to throw away everything and follow him. And that is traumatic. Um, that is traumatic in our lives. But what did he gain? What, what, for, what for Saul made it worth literally throwing everything about himself away to have? Well, Saul, later on when his name was Paul, he planted a church in a town called Philippi, and then he wrote them a letter, and it's called Philippians. It's in your handout. You could just listen to it. I think it's actually more helpful if you just listen. He wrote them a letter, and this is, this is what he said about all of the things that he lost. He talks about all of his credentials, every, the tribe of Benjamin, everything that he had done, everything that distinguished him from his peers. And he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. What Saul is saying is that he said, I gained Jesus. I lost everything, but I got Jesus. Therefore, I got everything. I gained everything. And there was something about knowing Jesus, being united to Jesus, that, that Saul could say, every part of my identity, like when the word says rubbish there, like, I don't want to be, like, more earthy than the Bible, like, than, the, like, the Greek. But it's, like, at minimum crap, okay? It's like, rubbish is, like, such a, like, it's like so British and clean sounding. It's, like, clean garbage. Um, and what he's saying is, like, I, I lost everything, and I consider it crap compared to being with Jesus, to seeing Jesus, to seeing how beautiful he is, how much he satisfies my soul, that he feeds me, that if I eat of him, that I'll never hunger again. If I drink of him, that I'll never thirst again. Um, and when Jesus gives us himself, he gives us everything. Everything that we possibly could have wanted. And look, coming to Jesus is traumatic for everyone because it involves a loss. But some of you may feel that more particularly tonight, that if you came to Jesus... You might lose friends, you might lose family, you might lose your identity. 
You might lose your morality. You might lose your purpose. You might lose your trajectory for the future. And Paul says it was all worth, it was worth suffering the loss of all things to have Jesus. And you want to know where he got that from? He got that from Jesus. Jesus who lost his friends and his family and his safety and his privilege and his identity to have you. Um, because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And the joy that was set before him was you, was having his people. And look, <clears throat> knowing what someone wants to gain changes everything about how you relate to them. I know this guy, let's call him C. Horn, uh, or sorry, Chris H. And, um, and um, it's me. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'll be vulnerable with you guys, and, and hopefully you can... Um, you know, support me in that. Um, <clears throat> my, so my parents split when I was a baby, and uh, and my dad was around for a while, but um, just like sort of increasingly less. And uh, he got remarried and had another family, and those are like his kids. And like he and I maybe have spoken like twice in like the last fifteen years, and uh, he's just not really <clears throat> interested, and um, which is confusing. And some of you guys know what that feels like. And the last time I talked to him was when we were pregnant with our oldest daughter, Georgia, who's now six. And uh, he you know, said to me, he was talking about what happened with my mom. You got to think for him, he was 20. My mom was like 18, 19. And um, he was reflecting back on it. And he said, you know, what happened with your mom was the worst mistake of my life. And, um, and, and like, it was pretty clear that like, if he could go back again, uh, he, he wouldn't do it the same way again. Like He wouldn't make the same choices. He wishes he could take it back. Um, and that's hard. Um, but you know, it's funny. I was raised by my mom. just being my mom. And like, we have our issues, you know, but what she always said to me as a child, she said, you know, everything that happened with your dad was like really, was really painful. And, um, but, but I would do it again. Uh, I would, I would lose everything again and I would endure everything again. She said, because I, I just to have you, I got, I got to have you in my, in my life. And um, for the joy set before my mom, which was me, which is amazing, um, she endured it and she would endure it again. <clears throat> and that, that's a tiny taste of how Jesus feels about you when you face the loss of all things. And that's a tiny taste of how you can begin to feel about this Jesus who would let nothing come between you and him. You could feel like, yeah, but I get to have him. I get to be with him, the lover of my soul. And the reason why Paul was so effective for the kingdom of God and why God used him so much was because his outward story matched what happened inside of him. It was consistent with his inner story. And it's a beautiful picture for us because, y'all, Jesus wants to bring you into his joy and to put you on display as a wonderful monument of grace to the people around you for the world to see. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much um, that you are very gracious to us and uh, that, you, um, that you take joy in us and that you don't relate with us how we deserve to be related to you, but that you give us grace that is sweet and free And you want us to have freedom. And Lord, I pray for my friends that are here tonight that you would interrupt their lives for the first time in a new way 
that they would see you, Jesus, and their only thought would be, if I could have him, then it would be enough. We pray in your name. Amen. Just like heaven